Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through Matrix on the 28th of April 2011. I always start off by telling newcomers to go into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and help yourself to the audios which are there for free download. There's hundreds to choose from and hopefully you'll get a better understanding of the massive superstructure of interlocking organizations which run the world basically above governmental level although they had some lesser members down in government, the guys that hope to get up higher into the superstructure, of course. So I try and give you shortcuts to understanding how this big system operates. It's been here for an awful long time, and of course they do have their plans and think tanks working on their future. They must always make sure of their own personal survival survival for the offspring into their own future, the one they design. And that's all you're going through today with the restructuring of the world, very old plan. And we're watching them do the finishing touches to some of it as they basically standardize the last few countries that are free to an extent from the central banking systems and the IMF into the same system. So remember, too, you're the audience that bring me to you. So help support me by buying the books and discs I have for sale at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Remember, too, you get transcripts as well from all of those sites in English, and you can get transcripts in other languages if you go into AlanWattSentinel.eu. Help yourself to those ones. But as I say, as the audience that bring me to you, buy the books and discs, etc. And from the U.S. to Canada, you can use a personal check or an international postal money order from your post office or cash or you can also use PayPal to order or donate. Use the donation button and follow it with an email with name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you. And remember, straight donations are really, really welcome, especially at this time of the year, because we've got a whole bunch of sites during you for another year, and uh, other bills on top of that, of course. And across the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and you have PayPal again to order or donate. Use the donation button, followed by the email name address and order. I'll get it out to you. Now, getting back to this big system, that's, uh, this overlapping system, it's, you, you can pick it up quite easily if you do have a memory and you do listen to little quips from either radio or you, you read it in magazines or newspapers throughout your lifetime. You start to see how the hierarchy kind of works with so the interlocking structure. And it's much the same as the way that Plato described it in his book called uh, The Republic, the perfect utopia for an elite to to rule over. He called it The Republic, where you would have a guardian class. And uh, that's something that Chop actually referred to them because they've all read Plato. They they really love uh, The Republic. And uh, they talk about themselves being part of the guardians of their world, basically. Uh, They also talk about the helping class that's brought in to manage on behalf of the guardian class, manage the people down below, trade industry, um, right down to reproduction in the the people they use for different occupations, how they breed people together at the bottom uh, for tall people, uh, for short people, for mining, 
and so on. Just like how you manage livestock or pedigree dogs, for instance. They talked about that thousands of years ago. And, of course, that's why they're using science to basically make it happen in our day and age. So there's nothing new under the sun, as they say. It's just that it's a better cover today that you're actually under this kind of system. And, of course, we know from Quigley and others and Russell and various other higher members of this organization how they select their helpers, the ones that you see on television as prime ministers or presidents, or really the guys behind them are far more important, all the appointed advisors and so on. They're far more important than any puppet they can put in front of you for public appeal. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and just talking about the, the system, this overstructure, this superstructure runs all across and above uh, all institutions across the world. And in fact, they make sure they have these institutions, these lower institutions, as a kind of safeguard for them. It's also their watchdog for them. And it's also the means by which they can get their big agenda put through because those who are incredibly well-paid, people who are picked, selected from Ivy League universities uh, and chosen before they they pass any degrees or whatever, these guys are really slated for a life where the doors are opened for them to make sure they get put into the right positions over the military, commerce, etc., etc., everything that runs your system and politics as well. And... There's nothing new at all in this system. It's been here for an awful long time, and Carl Quigley did a very good job being a member himself of this particular uh, working ruling group, the subgroup, you might say, not in the Guardian class, but the working group for the elites. He he mentioned that you had to be a part of this organization to get up in life at all, and that's been verified by even the CFR themselves, who admit uh, that they themselves... um, had to join the CFR to be accepted in amongst what they called they called the ruling class. It's not really. They might bump shoulders with some of the higher members that you'll never hear and mentioned in the news, but uh, they themselves technically are still a working type uh, worker B for, for the ruling class, but very well rewarded. And that's the key to it all. Those who get in from the Ivy League universities and brought up are incredibly well rewarded for, for the system into which they're brought into. And they become incredibly loyal to it as well. We, we could, as a species, we can adapt into doing anything you know, anything you're told if you're well rewarded for it. And you'll start to rationalize it in your own head. Just like the bankers who, shortly after plunging the whole world into a Great Depression by their bubbles and, and uh, basically being a bunch of criminals, uh, and then getting rewarded for it by the public, billing them out, and uh, and then give themselves multi-billion dollar pay raises and so on and bonuses. Uh, these are the kind of characters uh, who can always rationalize what they do. It's quite easy as a human, apparently, to, to rationalize anything you do. And it's the same if you took them into any other era, time, place, or whatever. Uh, these guys, if they were executioners for a very strong political, uh, a semi-military group, running a country, they would justify the slaughters they would commit and atrocities and executions they'd do too. Uh, these are the same personalities. It works all the way down 
the line right to the cop at the bottom of the street. So that's how the system works. Unfortunately, we're too well understood, and it's getting worse all the time as you understand more and more about us, because they have ongoing psychological testing on the public, uh, constantly, in fact. It's constant and data collection and so on to find out uh, how many people really are basically corruptible. Uh, and that's what it is. It's much easier to be corruptible when they don't call it corruption. What you're doing technically is not illegal, it's immoral, you see. And these guys make a big distinction between legal and immorality uh, to suit their own egos, obviously. That's why, as I've said so many times before, even before the last financial crash, they won't change the system of banking because it's meant to be left to crash every, at least twice a century so they can loot uh, real businesses, real businesses and small businesses, billions of them, and pension funds and everything else. They're meant to be able to do it so they can loot it from the public. That's why they'll never change it. And they haven't changed it since the last crash. It's the same when George Soros boasted that he and two of his buddies did a speculation deal to crash the British economy and they, uh, and they made millions and millions of pounds of it. And then the British taxpayer had to get the Prime Minister to go off to the international money lenders to get cash back to float the economy again and pay all that compound interest that never seems to end. That's how the world really runs. And we call this a sane system. It's quite amazing how you can be brought up in a system. You're taught to be proud of it. You can really condition people to be proud of, of the, the country. And we get confused, you see. We take the country and the people you know and the land itself uh, and even the way of life. We, t- we take that as what the, how the elites see it, but they see it in a different way altogether. The elites see the country as a big farm, a great big ranch. And they see you as down there amongst the animals. And, and they're proud of that too. They're proud of that, nice, well-behaved animals and so on. Who, who keep paying them through taxes to, to be up there to get big projects done uh, under the guise of national uh, roads or whatever it happens to be. And then, of course, they, they clap themselves in the backs when they get their politicians to hand it to them as a corporation to run instead. I mean, it's just a wonderful system being a rancher at the top. And they really do exist, these people. If you've ever mixed with any of them or met any of them, that's how they see the world. And so Charles Fort was right on that count. We are being farmed, technically. And, of course, that is simply verified by the ongoing data collection on the animals, uh, right down to wanting to chip us all down the the road, uh, weigh you and know everything about you, because a farmer, a good farmer, he knows his livestock. He really knows the hereditary of that uh, bull there and that cow there, and you can pretty well guess the strength of the offspring, their weaknesses and, and strengths, and how much cash is going to get down the road from them as they work away and get milked. So that really is the simple system that we do live in. And the feudal system never disappeared, of course. It simply transformed under a different guise, and they called it democracy, uh, which is actually better for them to run from the top because it's harder to, to actually see it for what it really is when you've been brainwashed into thinking uh, that a prime minister or a president runs a country and that he represents the public. It's much easier to run the public that way. It's a good, it's a good Disneyland cover. But it, you'll notice, too, how they manage all media, and it's quite fascinating to, as I say, you'll always find this throughout your life as major events happen, and then suddenly they vanish like they never happened at all. 
like Japan going up uh, with the radiation, uh, its economy almost wrecked, and um, radiation traveling across the Northern Hemisphere still is. Of course, not the sale keep happening for another 10 months as all this stuff fissions off. And, um, and of course, here they're all quiet about it too because, you see, the atomic energy agencies and so on, uh, I've got big bucks tied up in all these things across the world to all these different plants. And believe you me, they all vent off the, 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 the hydrogen every so often or they'd blow their roofs off just like what happened at Fukushima. They do this all the time. And then they dump the super uh, heated water that's supposed to be the coolant into whatever handy lake or sea is, pos- is, is, is around. And... Um, this happens pretty continuously for those who've lived around Toronto long enough for the picturing plants. And you'll know that too yourselves by little bits in the paper, if you can remember. You're supposed to forget, of course, as you're deluged with trivia. But this is a common uh, practice. Uh, and, uh, of course, you also have the, the opposition who wants to tear down every reactor without stopping to say, wait a minute here, uh, they're going to do away with all coal-fired reactors that give you all your power. If they do that and they close down all your nuclear plants, you wouldn't be playing with all your fancy electrical gadgets, would you? You'd be in dire straits altogether. Tremendously dire straits. And no one's thinking about that that either. However, it doesn't mean to say that they can't in the meantime tighten up and and, uh, be more forthcoming or put laws out so that we can know what's happening in the local reactors and how safe they are or how many inspections are taken. Are they repairing parts and and refitting them, etc., with worn-out parts and all that kind of stuff? We should be entitled to know that kind of stuff. And private corporations should not rule our lives with their secrecies when it comes to literally our lives. That's very simple. But as I say, there's a power of the press. I've mentioned it before that really Reuters is the leader for this, a Rothschild-owned company that bought over A&P. And um, so basically it's one corporation running the world's media and all the rest of them down below just, just trickles out to them. All the other media is owned by the Council on Foreign Relations. If you again read Carl Quigley's book, New York Times and so on, and Times of India, all the times across the world they own, in fact and many, many others to boot, to make sure you're all fed the information that will shape your opinions for you. And um, and unfortunately, that works very well as well. We have no real independent reporting on anything. Uh, the little that's left on the Internet is either fake or is disappearing, or, or it's a mixture of UFOs and all the rest of it to make it all ridiculous. So you're getting stuck with the mainstream again for every little bit of information which they want you to know. So I won't be sidelined by the trivia because because I honestly, to, even today I looked through and before Japan happened, there was almost nothing happening. It was hard to get any real information or even news on anything that really mattered to us. And it's gone back to the same thing again. Even uh, even invasion of Libya is quietening down and of course they're getting in there for the long haul along with Syria too though they're going into Syria and uh, every country that was on the New American Century list has been continued with, a, with, the same, with Obama's bunch which is really the same bunch by the way the guys behind them uh, with the same agenda so nothing changes you see everything's a show and then when they give you a, almost a dearth of news uh, there's nothing except trivia who cares about Obama 
Obama's birth certificate. Who really, who, who designed this one for us to, to be supposedly obsessed about? Who cares? I, it wouldn't matter if it was a pygmy they brought in from outside. It really wouldn't matter at all. It wouldn't matter if it was some guy that could even speak English. Because all they are is someone to take the praise and take the tomatoes when he does the wrong things. That's, that's his job. And the guys behind him, as I say, and all the unelected and appointed people are the ones who really run the show. And that's what they call democracy. So I won't even even touch on that. As I say, the only things of interest today are to do with Japan, Toyota, Nissan, Honda, Japan, uh, their production plunges, and how bad it is for their economy. That's what all they're saying. And then how they've been downrated by the top uh, fake guys that give ratings to the world. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, just talking about uh, Japan and how its exports obviously are way, way down and uh, it's really hurting them, of course, and the world's fairly quiet on it. It's like they don't really like it. And I know one of the reasons is because the people in Japan are pretty nationalistic and you can't be nationalistic in other countries. There's only one one country allowed to be nationalistic today and uh, the rest of them, uh, if you're nationalistic, you're bad. You're not part of the world community. So uh, this is uh, they're all putting the boot into Japan right now, of course. And then you find out that, um, that Standard & Poor's uh, have uh, basically lowered uh, their rating for Japan. Now, Standard & Poor were awfully good at, at rating all these bubbles very high, very good, you know, solid investments and stuff. So they're a bunch of fakers anyway. Uh, who, who, but why are they doing this to Japan? They don't really like Japan. And as I say, the U.S. doesn't need Japan anymore because they, they, they used to hold and buy the bonds of the U.S. Uh, before they, they moved them all to China. Now China buys the bonds so they can let uh, Japan sink. And that's really the way for it too. And um, in Europe, part of the whole idea of destroying all nations, uh, and Rompuy has talked about this in, in, in the European Union, uh, that um, he would never bring back the old systems, that the age of the nation-state is gone forever, uh, is to flood it with immigrants from all other countries so that to destroy the existing cultures. And Germany now has been told many times before to let in other European migrants. And to, in today's paper, uh, it says here that uh, Germany prepares for Polish influx as labor market opens. They've been told to by the super-Soviet system that presides over them but they're also letting people in from countries all around. It isn't just Poland. Um, and, of course, they're really flooded again with cheap labor, which is handy for people who hire. They like this kind of stuff. They can bring down uh, the cost of labor. But it's from all other countries around Europe as well. They're going to have to allow them into, and they must destroy what's left of any German culture too. For this wonderful world's zoo that's called the New World Order, now, there's a caller on the line from Ireland. It's, it's Robert from Northern Ireland, I think. Are you there, Robert? Hello, Alan? Yes. Hello. 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 Yep, go ahead. Uh, Alan, Alan, I basically wanted to ask you one question. I, I'm from the north of Ireland. Yep. Uh, and we have from some friends from the south. Um, they, uh, I just wanted to ask you a wee bit about the Lisbon Treaty. 
Yeah. Do you know much about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, basically, you know, they thought it was a great idea, you know, the first time round. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it came on, um, they seemed to think it was a great idea. Um, we we were kind of trying to put them off, you know, voting for the whole yes thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just for them, uh, I really wanted to ask you what you thought about it, you know. Well, I've got books here going from the Council on Foreign Relations and the Royal Institute of International Affairs that go back to the 1920s and 30s. And in one of their books, it was under the, their annual meetings for the British Empire, they called it at the time, um, they had members from both Northern and Southern Ireland on their, their committees, on their boards, high members, and they talked about the future of Ireland, how they'd eventually bring it into a, a, a European uh, community, the bloc, they called it, at that time. So this is 1937, and... Um, I've got the names of the speakers uh, and so on. They've been running both both sides of the country uh, since at least that time, to be honest with you, and um, working steadily towards uh, integration, only to be integrated under the super parliament of Europe that was always their plan. Remember, there was the same organization that set up the United Nations that also wanted to set up regional blocks and eventually dissolve the countries in under a super parliament and they've been pretty successful in it. So uh, these guys, you know, you're going to understand what the real mission is here, and it's to destroy all national sovereignty altogether. And eventually uh, private organizations, private companies, will be able to, to, as you're lumped into a region, you see, they'll be able to, to buy whole sections of your region and privately own them. So that would be the death knell of even saying we'll have an Ireland or Northern or Southern Ireland. Just buy chunks of it up. That's on the cards to, to, to go down in the not-too-distant future. Okay, Alan, that's great. That, that's basically hit the nail on the head for me. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all I wanted to ask you. Yep. Uh, thanks for calling. But th- that's what it is. And uh, this was decided, as I said, back in the 1930s. In that same meeting... Uh, these members, and it's all sponsored and paid for by the Rockefeller Foundation, by the way, that meeting. Um, they, were, they, were, they had all the top bankers of the day there from across all the countries, and the British Empire countries, and from the United States, even though it was a, 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 talking about the British Empire, because uh, the empire was to eventually merge with the U.S. empire, and the U.S. was to take it over, basically, which it has done. And they talked about bringing China up to be the manufacturing center uh, for the world, uh, and this is before World War II, when th- China was a third world country, and it was even after World War II, and um, so they had the, the World Trade Organization already planned back then, that would eventually come along, the World Court was to be planned, and um, through various treaties like the GATT Treaty, etc., they would basically set up the, the rules for trading for the world, where literally eventually they could buy whole countries up, if need be, whole regions and multiple countries all lumped into a, 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 a sale, basically. And they even had it planned right down to bring in the new feudal system. Then later on in, in the 60s, Carol Quigley, being the, the historian for this group, uh, put some of that in his book, not as much as I've said here, though. Back with more after this break. listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. 
because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back, and we're cutting through the matrix, talking about really how we're just living through a script, a long-term business plan written up by a long time ago by a group that is called roughly the Anglo-American establishment. That covers all peoples and races and so on, by the way, for those who think it's just a, a sort of a very white thing. It's not at all. It's maybe actually far from it in some ways. But anyway, um, it's a cover because it's really the power banks of London and the power banks of New York uh, and, and those who had the big investments in them that really were the part of the ruling establishment and still are today, in fact, that set up their organizations to maintain rulership over not only their, their, their two countries, but to, to take over what was then the British Empire and expand it beyond into a world empire. And that's what you've got going today. Rudyard, Rudyard Kipling talked about this himself and even wrote the poem where he talked about passing on the torch to the Americans. That's what it was, passing it on to you. The Americans had to take over because they had more landmass, more resources, more tax base, more men for, for cannon fodder, and, um, and that's what you're seeing continue up to this present time. So we're living through a long-term business plan, and uh, of course academia is completely on board because they get massive grants from the big foundations that, that, that can prize the parallel government, as Quigley called it, and Margaret Thatcher called it that too, by the way. When she retired, she joined it. She says, we are, are all ex-prime ministers, presidents across the world. We all know each other. And we uh, form a parallel government that can get the jobs done. We don't argue. We're not responsible to the general public for elections. And so they could get the actual thing right through. So they're talking really of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Council on Foreign Relations. And I've now changed the name after I, I, I played the... Uh, uh, some of their talks on, from uh, Canadian television 2005 with Amalgamation of the Americas, they changed the name in Canada to the CIC. But it's the same organization, and they've one in Australia, and New Zealand, India, Pakistan, and elsewhere across the world. So you're, you're working toward, and they all get into, they make sure they all get into politics as prime ministers and presidents. As I quickly said, there wasn't a single president or prime minister who hadn't been a member uh, since the late 1800s to make sure, of course, that, um, that, that the agenda goes on. And, it, and you're living through it going on. You're watching it and you're, you're seeing it and you're living through it going on as you take down the last few countries in the world, get them in a central banking system that will borrow from private banks and the World Bank and the IMF and um, then they're under this world rule of a tiny minority. But getting back to the trivia on the news, I won't bother even repeating the awful stuff that they're giving out as news now because it's rubbish, utter trivia and, and rubbish. I'll, I'll talk about, about uh, propaganda because you're, you're given propaganda which really comes through neuroscience today uh, and you have these guys calling, calling it neuroscience, not just psychology, but neuroscience. How to manipulate public opinion constantly and, and it's through all uh, government ads, it's through all general ads, by the way, because Madison Avenue is a big, big part of the establishment, and, uh, and it's through all your entertainment, uh, and it's quite simple to do, really. But anyway, 
Getting back to Bertrand uh, Aldo Huxley, I mentioned him in his book, uh, Brave New World Revisited, where he tells you how they can bring in this type of system and how they probably will. And he talks on propaganda. He uses Hitler. They always use Hitler, for, for example. They never use Stalin uh, and so on, because communism is almost a holy thing for these guys since they set it all up. But um, they talk about Adolf Hitler, how... Uh, he, he, he used a lot of techniques that they use today. Motivational research was a, a thing that he was already into, which, which really worked on the masses. And he would use unqualified assertions and sweeping generalizations. He says, these are the propagandist stock and trade. All effective propaganda, Hitler wrote, must be confined to a few bare necessities and then must be expressed in a few stereotype formulas. Global warming, global warming, global warming, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction, and so on, that kind of stuff. It says, in a few stereotype formulas. These stereotype formulas must be constantly repeated, for only constant repetition will finally succeed in imprinting an idea upon the memory of a crowd. And Hitler said the same thing. He did, he, people were just a crowd. Individuals don't fall for it, but the crowd does, you see. Philosophy teaches us to feel uncertain about the things that seem to us self-evident. Propaganda, on the other hand, teaches us to accept as self-evident matters about which it would be reasonable to suspend our judgment or to feel doubt. The aim of the demagogue is to create social coherence under his own leadership. But as Bertrand Russell has pointed out, systems of dogma without empirical foundations, such as scholasticism, Marxism and fascism, have the advantage of producing a great deal of social coherence amongst their disciples. The demagogic propagandist must therefore be consistently dogmatic, always dogmatic in their statements. It's climate change, it's climate change, global warming. No matter if it's pouring down rain or it's snowing and you're up to your eyeballs in it. All his statements are made without qualifications, and that's what you get, no qualifications. Any study they've done it proves the opposite. There are no greys in his picture of the world. Everything's either diabolically black or celestially white. In Hitler's words, the propagandists should adopt a systematically one-sided attitude towards every problem that has to be dealt with. He must never admit that he might be wrong or that people with a different point of view might even partially be right. And you find that with all these things that are put for the carbon taxes coming and the global warming and all that. They're completely dogmatic about it. They're all on board, as they say. Their opinions are all unified. Opponents should not be argued with. They should be attacked, shouted down, or if they become too much of a nuisance, liquidated. The morally squeamish intellectual may be shocked by this kind of thing, but the masses are always convinced that right is on the side of the active aggressor. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? The active aggressor gets the confidence of the public. Such then was Hitler's opinion of humanity in the mass. It was a very low opinion. Was it also an incorrect opinion? The tree is known by its fruits and a theory of human nature which inspired the kinds of techniques that proved so horribly effective must contain at least an element of truth. Virtue and intelligence belong to human beings as individuals freely associating with each individuals in small groups. So do sin and stupidity. But the subhuman mindlessness to which the demagogue makes his appeal, the moral imbecility on which he relies when he goads his victim into action, are characteristics not of men and women as individuals, but of men and women in masses. Think of music television, folks. They're turning every female into a lesbian whore. Have you, have you listened to the words and the stuff? 
Have you listened to any of the words? But that's for the mass woman, you see, not for the individual. There's too few individuals in male or females. Mindlessness and moral idiocy are not characteristically, characteristically human attributes. They are symptoms of, listen to this, herd poisoning. And again, that's music, television, that's your entertainment industry and so on. It's done on purpose too, by the way, because there's an agenda behind it and a reason for it. Herd poisoning. And all the world's higher religions, salvation and enlightenment are for individuals. And that's true too. People miss that point. They always attack the mass church. Never attack. They never understand that, that true religion can only appeal to the, the thinking intellectual. It's not something you just dump yourself in a bucket of water and you suddenly see the light or get on your knees like Mason with a blindfold and your, your, your chest exposed and your pants rolled up. I mean, it, it's actually an inner thing that happens to the person, the individual. There's nowhere where Jesus says he came to save the world. Far from it, he says he came to save the few. And he told he talked about the broad way, it was for the masses, and the road to heaven was very narrow, and few would find it. Anyway, and it's the same in other religions too. It's for the few who understand the higher meanings. So the kingdom of heaven is within the mind of a person, not within the collective mindlessness of a crowd. Christ promised to be present where two or three are gathered together. He did not say anything about being present where thousands are intoxicating one another with herd poison. Look at the tent preachers on television today with their buckets of money going round as they pretend to heal people. Under the Nazis, enormous numbers of people were compelled to spend an enormous amount of time marching in serried ranks from point A to point B and back again to point A. This keeping of the whole population on the march seemed to be a senseless waste of time and energy. Only much later, adds Hermann Rauschening, uh, was there revealed in it a subtle intention based on a well-judged adjustment of ends and means. Marching diverts men's thoughts. Marching kills thought. It kills thought. That's what the army's for, to make you uniform. Marching makes an end of individuality. Marching is the indispensable magic stroke performed in order to accustom the people to a mechanical, quasi-ritualistic activity until it becomes second nature. So Hitler was perfectly correct in his estimate of human nature. To those of us who look at men and women as individuals rather than as members of crowds or of regimented collectives, he seems hideously wrong. In an age of accelerating overpopulation or of accelerating overorganization and ever more efficient means of mass communication, he says, how can we preserve the integrity and reassert the value of the human individual? This is a question that can still be asked and perhaps effectively answered. A generation from now it may be too late to find an answer and perhaps impossible in the stifling collective climate of uh, that future time even to ask the question. So, you got to understand, you're not really... Li- you, I always say to people, who are you? And because they'll ask you who you are. What they really mean is, what are you? And they, and they judge you by what you do. And what you do will generally tell them what you think that your bank account will be. That's how people judge you in a commercialized system. But when I ask them, who are you? And they give you a name. I said, no, that's not what I mean. Who are you? I want to know who you are as a person. And what they'll try to do right after that is to give you all the things that would satisfy a herd mentality with their answers. They will not try and tell you who they really are as a person, what they think, 
about things uh, what, what they're uncomfortable about in society and stuff like that. They'll try to give you all the, the status quo, politically correct question, uh, answers. He goes on in this book too, he says, in the two preceding chapters are described the techniques of what may be called wholesale mind manipulation as practiced by the greatest demagogue and the most successful salesman in recorded history. But no human problem can be solved by wholesale methods alone. The shotgun has its place, but so has the hypodermic syringe. In the chapters that follow it, I shall describe some of the more effective techniques for manipulating not crowds, not entire publics, but isolated individuals. In the course of this epoch-making experiments on the conditioned reflex, Ivan Pavlov, that monster of a person, I added that part in, observed that when uh, subjected to prolonged physical or psychic stress, lab animals exhibit all the symptoms of a nervous breakdown. Well, that's what they had. Refusing to cope any longer with the intolerable situation, their brains go on strike, so to speak, and either start working all together, the dog loses consciousness, or he also resorts to slowdowns and sabotage. The dog behaves unrealistically or develops a kind of physical symptoms which in a human being we should call hysteria. Some animals are more resistant to stress than others. Uh, dogs progress, uh, processing what Pavlov called strong accessory constitutions break down much more quickly than dogs of a merely lively uh, disposition as opposed to a choleric or agitated temperament. Similarly, weak inhibitory dogs uh, reach the end of their t- uh, tether much sooner than do calm, imperturbable dogs. But even the most stoical dog is unable to resist indefinitely. You understand he's not talking about dogs here, and, and Pavlov wasn't interested in just how dogs... Have, they wanted to know how people would react. Eh? That's what all experiments are about, ultimately. If the stress to which he is subjected is sufficiently intense or sufficiently prolonged, he will end by breaking down as abjectly and as completely as the weakest of his kind. Pavlov's findings were confirmed in the most distressing manner on a very large scale during the two world wars as a result of the single catastrophic experience of a successful succession of terrors, uh, less appalling but frequently repeated. Soldiers develop a numbing or disabling psychophysical symptom, temporary uh, unconsciousness, extreme agitation, lethargy, functional blindness, or paralysis, completely unrealistic responses to the challenges of events, strange um, responses, um, and strange reversals to lifelong patterns of behavior. All the symptoms which Pavlov observed in his dogs reappeared among the victims of what in the First World War was called shell shocks. Shell shock. In the second, battle fatigue. Every man, like every dog, has his own individual limit of endurance. Most men react, reach their limits after about 30 days of more or less continuous stress under the conditions of modern combat. The more than average susceptible uh, succumb in only 15 days. See, it's not normal to go out and slaughter folk. That's why they have to train you to slaughter people and kill other people you don't even know. Uh, and the army's uh, very good at that. That's his job. It's to train you to go off and slaughter people you don't know. Uh, and maybe even to like it for some. And it's not normal either to be chased up a battlefield with a shell chasing you the size of a Volkswagen that, that blows everything to pieces when it lands. This is a form of madness, you understand. And it's economic war too. The guy who's going to get blown to bits hasn't got a clue of the big corporations that are involved in this and who's going to profit. He's not been told that within his propaganda sphere. Anyway, the more than average tough t- uh, can resist for 45 or even 50 days, strong or weak in the long run, all of them break down 
all that is to say of those who are initially initially sane. For ironically enough, the only people who can hold up indefinitely under the stress of modern war are psychotics. Interesting, eh? Individual insanity is immune to the consequences of collective insanity. So you have to be psychotic. Have you noticed, too, the soldiers can keep going back for tour after tour, year after year today? Have you noticed that's where all the drugs are on? And the the, the better uh, psychological conditioning they get and training to, to be impersonal about slaughtering folk and to feel good about it. I've always thought it odd when, when your propaganda goes in in any country and you, so you, they show you some soldiers coming home and they always show you the loving wife and a, maybe a child or two uh, and the, the hugs and they're so happy to be back, back. But this guy's just come back from slaughtering other mothers and children somewhere else across the planet. There's something wrong here, you know. As I say, this character too will give you this, this, the pat answers of his propaganda. We're over there to bring them democracy and, and give them freedom. And all that rubbish, when you know damn well that, that uh, Chase and all the rest of the big corporations and, 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 uh, are involved with the war and massive profits, and they're all getting dibs on first grabs and everything to be had in the land that's going to be conquered and plundered. Nothing changes, just better, better techniques of brainwashing. This is the fact that every individual has its breaking point has been known and in a crude and unscientific way exploited from time immemorial. In some cases, man's dreadful inhumanity to man has been inspired by the love of, love of cruelty for its own horrible and fascinating sake. More often, however, pure sadism was tempered by utilitarianism, theology, or reasons of state. Legal and physical torture. Back with more after this break. Folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix talking about reality and how reality is manipulated and it's always manipulated by propaganda from many, many sources and people today are trained, of course, not to listen in silence to anything they've got to have a radio blaring or a television blaring or on the cell phone or something blaring or occupied by a game or whatever it happens to be you've not been taught to sit and think for yourself it's a piece, you know that can come when you sit and think for yourself. It's quite amazing to try it. Personally, I think a lot of folk have never done it in their whole lives. Children have grown up watching their parents turn on the radio first thing in the morning till they're out the door to school, and back 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 come at night and there's a TV on, now it's all computers, and they're scared to think for themselves. And In fact, they've become accustomed to having their free time given to them, basically. Everything's laid on as entertainment or something's laid on to occupy you. Even children don't know how to make their own games anymore. They don't play anymore as children. Everything that they play with is put out by characters who are going to make them the future soldiers for the next war that they'll grow up into fighting and so on. And they'll want to go off because they'll think it's going to be fun. They really will think that. And they will blow people away because they're not real people. They're just the the, the, the little uh, 
things on the machines that they're playing with their Xboxes and so on. They're not real people. So it's easier to, to detach what you're actually doing from the reality of what you're doing. And that's great for military and for those who own the military. And you don't own the military. The military works for the big boys who go abroad with the president, the big corporations that follow in his wake to attend global meetings where all their interests happen to lay together. But the soldier doesn't know anything about that, nor does he care. He enjoys, for the first time in his life, uh, getting pulled into a place of status by a uniform. Very simple thing to do. You dress him up by uniform, suddenly you get status. You know, suddenly you're from a nobody, you're, you're a somebody, because the general population's been trained to see you that way too. Quite something else. And like every army before them, like the Russians going into Germany at the end of World War II, they were shocked to find the public didn't want to be liberated uh, by the communists. Just like the American troops were, were shocked to find that they didn't want, the Iraqis didn't want to be liberated either uh, by the Americans because they knew what the scams were really all about. They knew more than the troops did. They said, you're after the oil. <laughs> and they were correct. And the troops were actually parting that stuff. We're bringing you freedom and democracy. Do you have freedom and democracy as, as your banks plunder you over and over again? Do you have any say in the direction of this world? Do you have any say at all? Do you have, do you have any possibly, possible chance of getting up into even the higher, even the basic lower ends of politics without being vetted by special committees and clubs? Never mind the higher realms of the CFR. Do you have any of that at all? So why do you bother voting for the people who do? Because all they're doing is guaranteeing you put me in and I'll make sure the same banking scams will continue because they're the real bosses. I'll make sure the military boys get their way on behalf of the big corporations and so on. The same system goes. And I'll make sure the taxpayers will continue bailing us all out at the top. Whose system is it anyway? From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.